because that's what I had planned for today, and doggone it, that's what we're going to talk about. But in any case, um, so that's what we're going to go to. Uh, when I was eight years old, I shared with you last week that I made my decision to accept Jesus as my Savior. I knelt down at my bedside. I shared with you, if you were here with us last week, um, I knelt down at my bedside with my dad one evening when I was eight years of age and accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, recognized that I had a sin problem that only he could fix, and so asked him for the forgiveness of my sins when I was eight years old. The thing I didn't tell you last week is that that was on a Sunday evening, and earlier that evening we had been at church, and at Sunday night church, guess what subject they talked about? Hell, that's right. And I wanted some fire insurance. I mean, I was motivated, right? And uh, they talked about how Jesus was going to come back, how he was going to take those that were still here alive on earth and the dead in Christ, and they were all going to go on up to heaven. And I wanted to make sure I did not miss out on an eternity in heaven. I didn't want to go to hell. And so, quite frankly, I was scared, wanted that fire insurance, and so I made that decision to accept Jesus as my Savior. Well, at some point, while I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, hell virtually disappeared from preaching and teaching in the pulpits across America. Um, and perhaps the reason for that was is people thought, well, when you preach and teach on a doctrine of hell, that's kind of too scary. You know, you might run some people off. People might not be interested in hearing about that kind of thing. And what about the children? We can't scare the children. Well, I was eight, and I was pretty glad that they talked about that subject that night. I benefited greatly from it. But in any case, um, preachers stopped preaching about hell back in the 70s and 80s, and Americans had basically lost their appetite for teaching on the subject of hell. And so just because, though, the church has ignored the subject of hell for the last many decades doesn't mean that hell has disappeared from the scriptures, and so that's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about this essential doctrine of eternal judgment of hell. And so I want to help us dive into this subject by asking and answering five questions. We're going to have five questions. That'll kind of be our format of rolling out this information today. And uh, before we get to those questions, though, I want to take a look at our scripture. So I'm going to ask, if you would, to stand with me for the reading from God's Word. We're going to be reading Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And we'll start at verse 43 through 48. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 43. Let's read together. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where... Their worm never dies, and the fire is not quenched. You may be seated. Thank you very much. So that was Jesus talking about this subject, talking about the doctrine of hell, giving some teachings on it. And so let's jump into our first question here for the day, which is, did Jesus believe in hell? Because if Jesus believed in hell, and I'm a follower of Jesus, then it'd be kind of difficult for me to say, well, I want, I'm going to disagree to disagree with Jesus, Right? And so what we need to do is we need to get on board with what Jesus thought. And so did Jesus believe in a real place called hell that people who didn't repent of their sins would go to? Well, you bet he did. Jesus absolutely believed in hell. In the Sermon on the Mount alone, Jesus made many references to hell. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22, Jesus said, But anyone who says, you fool or raka, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Verse 30, he said, and if your right hand causes you to sin, sounds very familiar to what we just read here in Mark, doesn't it? 
Cut it off, he said. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And then in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 19, the tail end there of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire of hell. In the Gospel of Matthew alone, Jesus speaks about hell. He speaks about the destruction that will happen to the soul in hell on 16, get this, 16 separate occasions. Did Jesus believe in hell? You bet he did. Did And he believed it to be a place of suffering. He believed it to be a place of eternal fire. He believed it to be a place of eternal pain. And in his own words, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 50, he said, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You say, okay, Gordon, so Jesus believed that hell was a real place. I get that. I, I, I understand that. But I got another question for you, and we'll call this question number two. And so your question is, will hell really be all that bad? I mean, is it, I mean, is it just going to be like I'm just living in darkness, and I can't see my hand in front of my face? I mean, what's going on there in hell? Well, Jesus spoke to what hell is going to be like. In Luke chapter 16, he's telling the story of a man who went to hell and so he gives an account there. And so we'll look at, we'll pick it up at verse 24, Luke chapter 16, verse 24. And this is the guy's request, the guy who's ended up in hell. He hollers out to Father Abraham, okay? Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation who's in heaven, he hollers out to him and he says, Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus. That's the guy that this fellow knew back on earth. He said, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Why? Why do that? He says right there in the text, because I am in agony in this fire. Friends, when a single drop of water is all that it takes to give you relief from your suffering, you are in a bad situation. That is not a good place that you want to be. In fact, four times Jesus describes hell here in Luke chapter 16 using the words torment and agony. Torment and agony. There was this guy who was in hell. He wasn't interested in partying on into eternity with all of his buddies. Woo-hoo! There was no beer on tap in hell. There was nothing that was going to give this guy any kind of relief. This guy was not interested in be there, being there. Not even a drop of water could be found to cool the fire that was going on. All he wanted to do was to get out of that place. That's the only thing he was interested in. How bad is it? Well, one Italian preacher of years gone by described hell this way. He said, fire, fire, the fires of hell. Fire in your eyes, fire in your nose, fire in your mouth, fire in your throat, fire in your guts, fire inside and fire outside. Fire beneath you, fire above you, fire in every part. And as if the fire wasn't bad enough, Jesus adds to the statement of what the suffering is going to be like when he said in Mark chapter 9 and verse 48, he said, you will have worms that will feed on your flesh that will not die and will feed on your flesh and your soul eternally. You say, Gordon, doesn't sound like a very happy place. No, it does not. It sounds like a pretty terrible place. But besides the means of suffering, I got another question for you. Question number three, how long? is that suffering going to last? How long is the suffering going to last? I mean, I've heard some, you may say, I've heard some like Seventh-day Adventists and some other people say when you go to hell that like the fires of hell will consume you and you'll be annihilated 
and you'll cease to exist. Like you get thrown in there, ah, suffer, 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 gone. Is that, is that what's going to happen? I mean, how long is a person going to suffer in that place? Well, that's a good question. Let's see what Jesus had to say about it. Look with me again at Mark chapter 9, the verses we read a few moments ago. Mark chapter 9 and verse 43. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands or than with two hands to go into hell. Watch now, where the fire never goes out. Friends, if the person in hell is consumed, if they get burned up, if they get annihilated, if they cease to exist, then what is the purpose of the fires continuing to burn? I mean, why wouldn't God just and blow it all out when everything's all burned up that's in there? Why, would, why wouldn't he do that? Well, the answer, I think, is very clear. It's because the person who goes there does not get consumed. They're not annihilated. They do not cease to exist. But instead, the inhabitants of hell suffer eternally in the eternal fires, as Jesus said, of hell. Augustine, who's one of the early church fathers, dealing with this rationale of annihilation versus eternal suffering, said said it this way. He said, is it not folly, that is it not foolishness, to assume that eternal punishment signifies a fire lasting, oh, just a little while, while believing that eternal life, that is for the people who go into heaven, that the eternal life is without end. So in other words, what he's saying is, is it foolish for us to say then that for those that go into heaven, oh, they live on for eternity, their soul is eternal, but that for the souls that go into hell, that somehow we're going to change the rules of the eternality of the soul and that those will be consumed. And he looks at that and says, we're wanting it both ways. That's silly. In his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul confirms that the soul goes to hell and lives on eternally suffering. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of background here about Paul and the Thessalonians. The The people in Thessalonica, at the time that Paul writes this letter, had been experiencing intense suffering at the hand of the Romans. And so to help comfort the church that was there, uh, with all the, all the persecution that they were enduring, Paul shares some words about what's going to happen to their persecutors, to the people who go to hell. Okay, He, share, he shares these words. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul writes that they, that is the persecutors, will be punished with everlasting destruction. Paul says here that their punishment will be eternal, that it will be ceaseless, that the punishment that they are going to experience when they go to hell will keep coming and keep coming and keep coming and it's going to keep hitting them and it's going to keep coming after them and the suffering is going to keep on. It's going to keep on. He says that they'll, be etern- they'll experience eternal destruction. The destruction is never going to stop. It's going to keep hitting them and hitting them. Why? Because the object that's being punished itself is eternal. The soul lives on in hell forever and ever. And so that's why the fires of hell will continue to burn forever. Revelation chapter 14 paints a very similar picture of the inhabitants of hell. Here you have the Apostle John. He has visions of the end of time, and he sees people in heaven, and he talks about some of the events that are taking place there. And here in Revelation chapter 14, he sees people in hell, and he talks about what's taking place there. He says, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 11, of the persons in hell, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Friends, why would the smoke continue to rise forever and ever? 
unless there was something there that was continuing on. It just keeps going on and on. There's no rest, he says, day or night. Revelation chapter 20 takes us to the end of human history. And here we see Satan and all of his demons being judged. Look at chapter 20 and verse 10. It says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, this is the lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown just a few verses earlier. They will be tormented, the people in hell, Satan and the false prophet and the beast and all these others, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Tormented day and night forever and ever. Friends, if we keep reading, we see what happens to those members of the human race who choose not to make that decision that I made when I was eight years old, that you made whenever, to accept Jesus. And we see what happens to those persons. Look at verse 14, Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire, that's where Satan's being tormented forever and ever. We just read that a few verses ago. Is the second death. Now let's take a time out right there for just a second. Have you ever run across that phrase, the second death, and wondered, what in the world are we talking about here? Well, let me explain. The second death, what we're talking about here is that when Jesus returns to the earth to gather together his church, to gather together the believers, first, the scriptures teach us that those who are dead in Christ, those that have already died, but they had accepted Jesus during their lifetime, their bodies were thrown overboard at sea, they were buried in a cemetery, cremated, whatever, that when Jesus comes back, he's going to reconstitute, he's going to raise from the dead, he's going to resurrect your physical body, minus 20 pounds. Now, I don't, I don't know how that's going to go. But in any case, he's going to resurrect your physical body and reunite your physical body with your soul. Paul teaches that to be absent from the body, right, it's out here in a cemetery, to be absent from that body, your soul's absent from that body, is to be present with the Lord. So when you die here on this earth and you've accepted Jesus, you go on up to heaven and you spend eternity in heaven. But then when Jesus comes back, he's going to reunite, re resurrect your body, reconstitute your physical body, and reunite your soul with your physical body. That's the first thing that's going to happen when Jesus returns to earth. That's going to happen. And then for those that are still alive here on the earth at that time, whose souls are still connected to their physical bodies, right? They haven't separated yet because they didn't die. Then those will be caught up into the sky and off onto heaven. This is what the scripture teaches. But if we read here in these verses, in the verses just preceding verse 14 that we just read, we learn that all people will be resurrected from the dead and that all people will have to stand judgment before Christ, that God's going to resurrect everybody's body going to reunite everybody's soul to their bodies and that all people will have to stand before the judgment seat of christ that's right here in these verses in revelation chapter 20 and so when we get to revelation 20 um that's what we're we're, we're dealing with this final standing before god everyone with their soul and their resurrected body reunited having to stand before jesus and give account for our lives and in the next verses, uh, uh, we're going to see that there's a book that's supposed to be opened, and the book is called the Lamb's Book of Life. And if you accepted Jesus, like I did when I was eight, like you've done perhaps at some point in your life, when you accepted Jesus and asked him for the forgiveness of your sins, your name was written in that Lamb's Book of Life. You want your name written in that book. And so we're about ready to read where the book gets opened up and the names are read. 
And so, verse 15, he says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, those people who have already received, who already had to stand before God, have already had to give their uh, account of their life, those people who did not accept Jesus, here's what happens to them. They were thrown into the lake of fire. Their soul and their resurrected body are thrown into the lake of fire. And what happens in the lake of fire? We'll look back at verse 10. We just read it a few moments ago. The people there are tormented day and night forever and ever. Friends, my point in saying this is to say that the punishment of hell, the punishment of hell will be painful, both mentally and and physically. Tormented, the book says. The punishment of hell will also be final. There will be no coming back. Your opportunity to receive Jesus is while you still have breath in your lungs. You can't get on up to heaven, die, realize, oh, I didn't realize all this. I didn't know about this. God, I'm so sorry. You had your chance while you were living here on this earth. And so the punishment of hell will be painful. The punishment of hell will be final. And the punishment of hell will be ceaseless. There is no relief, no relief from the suffering. Say, Gordon, I got one more question for you. Okay, shoot. Say, I was here last week and I heard you say that God is love. How can a loving God cause someone to suffer like that? It's a good question. How can a, much less, how can a loving God cause someone to be thrown into hell and suffer there, not just for a little while, but for all of eternity? I mean, where's the mercy in that? Where's the compassion there? Where's the loving God there? It's a good question. You see, yes, the Bible says that God is love, but among all of God's attributes, the ones that the angels sing and are compelled to sing and can't stop singing is that God is what? Holy. And they constantly sing it. Holy, holy, holy. God is holy. That means that God is pure. That means that God is uncontaminated. But that poses a problem for you and I. See, we are not holy. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. Friends, when we sin, we contaminate ourselves. Our souls become corrupt. And there's no way for us to scrub clean the dirtiness of our own sin. I don't know if any of y'all pay attention to country music, but this past week's Florida Georgia Line, anybody? No? Some people are like, ah. Anyway, they came out with a new song this past week or two weeks ago, whatever, called Holy, maybe it's Holy, Holy, Holy. I don't know. He sings Holy, Holy, Holy in the song. And he's singing about his girlfriend. She may be great. And I'm not disparaging his girlfriend at all. Or his wife. I don't, I don't know who he's singing about. But I'm assuming it's a girl. Yeah, he's singing about a girl. And I, I, she may be the best thing that has ever happened to him. But friends, I got news for this guy. She is not holy. Not like God is holy. She is not pure. She is not uncontaminated. The scriptures say, Romans 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, friends, because God is holy and we are not, it creates a big problem. If, 
we're going to be allowed into his presence. If we're going to be allowed into heaven. And because God wants for us to be in heaven, this is where Jesus comes in. God sent the second person of the Trinity, part of the Godhead himself, sent Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, here to the earth, lived a perfect, spotless, sinless life, to die on a cross for your sins and mine. See, God had set up during the Old Testament age a system whereby a person could take the blood of an innocent animal, take the life of that animal, spill the blood, and then that animal would be offered as a sacrifice to God in place of sinful me. So God's judgment fell on the animal instead of falling on me. God allowed the life of the innocent life of the animal to take the place of my life. Jesus came to earth, lived a sinless life, and just the same became the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, and gave his life, spilled his blood out on the cross so that you and I could be able to enter into the presence of a holy God. Now, what has all this got to do with God's love? Well, God displayed his love on the cross. God gave the very best that he had. He gave himself to die on the cross for your sins and mine in order to rescue us. I mean, the whole point of Jesus coming to the earth was to rescue us from an eternity apart from him. God can't allow just anybody into heaven, friends, only those who have been made pure, been made holy by the blood of Jesus. Hell in that case is the necessary response of a holy God to those who have not been made pure. While the cross is a demonstration of God's love, hell is a demonstration of God's holiness. The cross is God's best attempt to rescue us, though, from an eternity apart from him. Okay, well, there's a lot more passages in the scripture that deal with, everybody doing all right? Or the quiet. All right. Anyhow, there's a lot more passages that talk about hell in the, in the text and that sort of thing, but that's kind of the basic gist of what's going on in the Bible with this subject matter. And so what I'd like to do now is to get to our final question of the morning, and it's our most important question, which is, what difference does all this make to my life, right? You say, Gordon, I, I've accepted Jesus. I've, I've bent my knee. I've asked him for the forgiveness of my sins. I've experienced that forgiveness of my sins. I know where I'm going. So, I mean, what does any of this have to do with me? What does this have to do with my life? Well, let's talk about that. You see, um, my dad, let me take you back some years back ago. My dad was an elementary school principal for nearly 30 years. And uh, he was old school, okay? Back then, he had a paddle that hung on the wall. Some of y'all have experienced similar paddles. He had a paddle that hung on the wall in his office. It was a wooden paddle. It was all made out of one piece of wood. It was a rectangular in shape, had a handle down the end. It was all one piece. It was about an inch thick, maybe five or six inches wide, and it hung there on the wall in his office. Now, this paddle had in it about maybe two, maybe three dozen holes drilled up and down the length of this piece of wood, about 18 inches long, and drilled up and down the, the length of this paddle. And uh, the reason for this was that uh, I guess principals back in the day, they used to manufacture these things. But in any case, they learned that they could swing it faster with a lower wind resistance, right, with the holes all drilled in it, 
But also the reason for the holes was so that when it connected with your backside, you know, Johnny, put your hands on the desk, and it connected with your backside, even if you had jeans on, it would suck your skin through the holes in that paddle, and it would cause the whack of that paddle to sting, ouch, I hurt a little bit, to sting that much more, okay? Well, my dad's school was known for being in a difficult part of town, and the students there were not the best behaved out in the community. But when they walked in my dad's school, they got with the program. When they walked in my dad's school, they did what was expected. They spoke with respect to their teachers and to their adults. They used appropriate language. Do you know why? It's not because my dad gave them a big hug on the way into school every morning, which he may have done, you know. He may have greeted them with a big warm smile and love, and they felt that. That may have been. But that's not why, necessarily, the only reason why they were so well-behaved in his school. It wasn't because the teachers passed out candy when people did things that were right or because they gave them extra playground time. That may have been something that happened at the school. I'm sure it was. But it's not the one reason or only reason why students were so well-behaved. You know why they were behaved. It was because of that paddle hanging on the wall in my dad's office. That paddle would correct some problems. And it would bring people into line and it would straighten up some bad attitudes and it would eliminate backtalk you see as human beings we are rebellious by nature i mean that's just how that's it's in us it's innate in us and if you don't believe me you probably never had a two and a half year old in your house right i mean we are just rebellious by nature And so because we are creatures of rebellion, it is necessary for us to be aware that there are consequences to our actions. You say, but Gordon, you're missing the big point. I told you I've already accepted Jesus. I've already had my sins forgiven. I'm not worried about hell. I don't need to worry about that because I know where I'm going. And you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You don't need to worry about that. You don't need to be fearful of an eternity apart from God. God is love. We saw that. And so this teaching on hell tells us that God is love and that God came on a rescue mission to rescue us from there. But the reality of hell also reveals that God is a God of consequences. Let that sink in. The reality of hell teaches us that God is a God of consequences, that God believes in consequences. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 writes, Do not be deceived. Don't walk around thinking something that isn't true, he says. God will not be mocked. You can't just live one way and expect God to just say, hey, it's okay, it's all right. Here's what God does. Here's his paddle on the wall. For those of us even that have accepted Jesus. He didn't come after us with it, but here's what he does. A man reaps what he sows. That is, God allows the consequences of the decisions of our life to impact us. Sometimes God shows us mercy. Sometimes God shows us clemency. Sometimes God withholds those consequences. And sometimes 
God, like a good parent, allows those consequences to fall. And so this is what hell reveals to us. What I'm driving at is that we need to maintain, friends, a healthy fear of God. A healthy fear of God. Psalm chapter 111 and verse 10 said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is that deep reservoir inside of us that instinctually knows those folks are up to no good. I don't need to be a part of that. Wisdom is that deep reservoir inside of us that says, here's some good decisions for my life. These are bad decisions for my life. Let me follow the good decisions. Wisdom is that deep reservoir inside of us that instinctually knows where I can find joy, where I can find peace, where I can find self-control, and pursues those things. But the beginning of a life of integrity, a beginning of a life that is wise, starts with, the scripture says, a healthy fear of the Lord. And this is part of the reason why Jesus taught even his own believers on the doctrine of hell. You say, Gordon, you're kind of scared of me this morning. Friends, that is the point. That's the point. The Bible is okay with it, even though it may have disappeared from our preaching and teaching over the last many decades in the church in the West. The Bible's okay with it. It's a part of Jesus' platform of what he taught, and we need to teach it. I'm a beneficiary. I don't regret one moment that somebody shared with me the reality of hell. I'm glad that I was a little bit scared. I'm glad it was a great motivator for me. There's another side to this, and that is that if hell is real, and it is, then nothing else should matter. Friends, there are people all around us who do not know the Lord. There are people all around us who are heading for a disaster in eternity, and you and I have the information that they need to change where they're heading for eternity. But we've got to open our mouth. We've got to follow the leading of the Lord. We've got to push through the sweaty palms and the sweaty armpits and the heart racing because we don't want to say something. We're not sure if we should. Oh, I don't want to offend those people. Friends, I think we'll all have two regrets when we stand at heaven's gate. One of them will be that we didn't give more to the work of the Lord. And I think the other will be that we didn't tell more people about Jesus. Hell is a great motivator. And I hope that the Lord, through the clear and truthful teaching of his word, has motivated your heart, has awakened something within you, a passion and a determination that will not be denied. Friends, hell is real. Nothing else matters. I want to close this morning by addressing those among you who would say, Gordon, I'm, I'm a little scared this morning because I don't know where I'll spend eternity. Because if, like you were when you were eight years old, if I look down deep in my gut and I assess not how I've lived, but whether or not I've made the decision to accept Jesus. Friends, you can show up at hell with a, show up at heaven with heaven's gates with a, a list a mile long of all the philanthropy that you've done in your life. 
But none of that's going to matter. It's, were you covered in the blood of Jesus? Have you accepted the forgiveness that Jesus offers? And so I want to give you a chance this morning to respond to the information that you've heard here today, that Jesus alone saves. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask for all of us to bow our heads, to close our eyes, in just a moment. And right where you're sitting, I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer after me. You don't need to say it out loud. It's not for the other people around you to hear. It's not for me to hear. You're speaking to the one whom the hearts of all people are openly uh, known. You're praying to the Lord. And I'm just going to ask if you would repeat the lines of this prayer, just as I repeated the lines of the prayer my dad prayed with me. And you receive Jesus, and you receive the forgiveness of your sins, and the confidence that when you arrive at heaven's gate, you will be welcomed in. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you to say that Jesus is the only way. I know that you'll accept nothing other than the blood that Jesus shed. And so right now in these moments, I want to ask you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins, to wash my heart clean. Jesus, I'm trusting in you for eternity. Thank you for what you've done in my heart. Thank you that I'm a new person, a new creation. Jesus, I commit my life to you. In your name I pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come now to receive these elements that represent your broken body and your shed blood, we are thankful for the rescue mission that you were on to rescue us from a place that you knew was so real and so terrible. And so, Jesus, we just thank you for this, for giving the best you had, your very own life, that we might have life eternal with you. Continue to speak and move in our hearts, we pray, Holy Spirit, in these quiet moments. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.